Why not turn with me to 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second. Uh, sorry, let me start again. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them to remind, as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The context of these verses, uh, I particularly want to look at verse 8 and 9. The context of these verses is the second coming of the Lord. People were saying that because it hadn't already happened, then God had broken his promise or was slow in keeping his promise. Now, most of us who've got children, when they were small and we started out on a journey, we wouldn't get very far before they'd ask the question, are we there yet? Has that happened to you? Are we there yet? Do you know there's a bit of that in all of us? There really is. We all want to know about the coming of the Lord. Are we there yet? I'm not going to tell you the date and time, but there's a lot of people who've got so stirred up about it that they're not only wonderfully thrilled by the fact of the promise of the coming of the Lord, but they've gone so far as to think they can work out the when. And it's happened right through history by scores of people. Let me give you one or two examples. Hippolytus of Rome and Irenaeus, early church uh, theologians of the early church era, predicted Jesus would return in the year 500. And one of them actually worked it out from the measurements of Noah's Ark. Now, I don't know how he did that, but he did, but he was wrong. In 1553, the mathematician Michael Stiffel 
calculated that Judgment Day would begin spot on 8 a.m. on the 19th of October of that year. He was wrong. Coming right up to closer our time, 1988, Edgar Wisnant published a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. When this didn't happen, he wrote a follow-up book, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. That didn't happen. Another man, Ronald Wineland, predicted that Jesus would return on the 29th of September, 2011. When his prediction failed to come true, he moved the date of Jesus' return to the 27th of May, 2012. When that prediction failed, he moved it to the 18th of May, 2013, and so on. I'm not going to bore you with any more of these. There have been so many down through the years. In fact, there is on the internet, I forget what site it's on right now, but someone's published a list of all the predictions that have not come true about Jesus coming. Are we there yet? Now, I, I actually know someone who knows the year, the month, the date, and the time. And that's my Heavenly Father. Nobody else does. Jesus said that. Nobody else knows the when. The one thing I do know is we're nearer to it now than ever before. God has not broken his promise. These verses, verse 8 and 9, are Peter's response to the people who said, it's gone on so long now, God hasn't kept his promise. And in these verses, he actually tells us something wonderful about God. And that's what I want to focus on. Let me read verse 8 and 90 again. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. First thing he tells us about God is that God is everlasting. Verse 8, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Now, Peter might well have been quoting from Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. A commentary by Clark says this, All time is as nothing before him, because in his presence, as in the nature of God, all is eternity. Therefore, nothing is long, nothing is short before him, no lapse of ages impairs his purposes. Now, I often in my sermons, and I'm sorry if you get fed up of it, like to quote Spurgeon. I think he was a great man of God. Uh, and I've got a quote here. He says about these verses, all things are equally near and present to God's view. 
The distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to him than would be the interval of a day. With God, indeed, there is neither past, present, nor future. He takes for his name the I am. He is the I am in the present, the I am in the past, and the I am in the future. Just as we say that God is everywhere, so we may say that he is always. He is everywhere in space. He's everywhere in time. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born, you, were, you, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. We are finite people. No doubt about that. And we have a great difficulty, at least I do, grasping the concept of eternity. Our lives are defined by beginnings and endings. But God didn't have a beginning, and he'll never have an ending. When the Bible God says that God is infinite, here's the simple meaning of it. God isn't limited by time or space. There were three little words used by theologians sometimes to describe this infinite nature of God. They all begin with the word omni. You know where I'm going now. The first uh, omni, incidentally, means all, total, complete. The Bible teaches first that he is omnipresent. God's present is not limited. When you're at home, you can't be at church. And when you're at church, you can't be at home. Some years ago, the East Anglian Presbytery asked me to preach at a special service in Lowestoft on the East Coast. Um, he was very specific in Lowestoft at Elam Church. Service starts at 7.30. Jean and I got to the church about 7 o'clock. It was all shut up, lights off, nobody there. We waited 10 minutes, still nobody there. But the telephone number of the minister was on the church notice board, so we rang. His wife was home and answered. She said, didn't they tell you the service has been switched from Lowestoft to Dis? Now, Dis was 35 miles away from Lowestoft. And there was 20 minutes before the service started. Now, I drove as fast as I could, but I still got there 20 minutes late. You see, I couldn't be in Lowestoft at ten past seven and in Dis at um, half past seven. I'm limited by time and space, but God isn't. God doesn't have that limitation. He's everywhere. He's also omnipotent. God's power is not limited. I used to be able to lift a sack of potatoes weighing 50 pounds. In fact, when the kids were small, we had four children, um, we used to buy our potatoes by the sack. And I used to go and pick them up and put it on my shoulder and put it in the boat of the car. I don't think my back and knees would take it now. But uh, I couldn't lift a sack of potatoes weighing 1,000 pounds. I have limitations to the power of what I 
can do. But God has no limitation. I'm glad Claude read that scripture. With God, all things are possible. Who knows what God might do? Even in the service this morning, as the Holy Spirit moves among us. Thirdly, God is omniscient. God is understand, God's understanding is not limited. A lot of things I don't know. My wife's on Sunday school, but if she was in the congregation and she heard me say that, I'd know exactly what she was thinking. She'd be thinking, can I have that in writing? <laughs> I just know as she thinks after 50 odd years of married life. But my knowledge is limited. I don't know everything. But God does. He knows it all. He's not limited in any of his ways. He is infinite. Then Peter says, God is patient. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. The word patience is derived from a Greek word, makrothumia, which is often translated in our New Testament as long-suffering. When Adam sinned, God didn't charge into the garden with a drawn sword. He walked into the garden to talk to Adam and call him out from where he was hiding. Similarly, God's patience enabled him through Jesus to come after us when we were lost and astray. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The patience of God is God choosing to delay his reaction to my sin so that I can reflect and repent of my sin. The Apostle Paul shows us the patience of God in the way God dealt with him. Saul, as he was called in those days, persecuted the church relentlessly. He caused great suffering of God's people. And I can imagine the Christians at the time uh, were, must have been praying, God, won't you judge this man? Won't you deal with him? Won't you bring him down? But God was patient with Saul because God wanted to bring him to the place of repentance and faith so God could use him. God is patient. I'm glad God is patient. Listen to what Paul later wrote to the Romans in Romans 2.4. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? God, uh, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 2 Peter 3, people were thinking God has not kept his promise. During the early church era, some of these people were saying there are one of three reasons for this, why God hasn't kept his promise. They were saying some of it is ignorance. Well, we've dealt with that. God is all-knowing. They were saying God has forgotten about his promise. Now, we have to be careful here before we say silly people, because haven't we all been guilty of something like that sometimes? When we're in a real state and everything's gone wrong and we're so upset, haven't we been tempted to say, 
Does God know what I'm going through right now? Has God forgotten me? I've heard Christians say things like that, and maybe I have too. The answer is that God is fully aware of the injustice and the suffering in your life and mine. But hey, this is not the end of our story. God hasn't finished with us yet. And I'm glad of that. But God is all-knowing. He is omniscient, as we said. I love Psalm 139. Listen to, it's a good one to read when you think God has forgotten you. Listen to a few verses. The psalmist says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. God hasn't forgotten about his promises. He hasn't forgotten about you. He knows where you are right now, what you're going through, your problems. Others were saying, no, it's because God is weak now. He's lost his power and his strength. In reality, I believe that God's power is shown in his restraint. He has the power to restrain his judgment in his mercy and his grace. Listen to the prophet Nahum. He captures this in chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The two go together. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he will be patient slow to anger. Others said it's because God doesn't care. It's apathy. It would be easy sometimes when you look out at the world and think, pray like John in, in Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. These, some people are saying and were saying in Peter's time, God doesn't care anymore. Israel thought that at one time. But God says, Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. I think when people make the assertion that God doesn't care, it's an insult to God. Just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how much God cares. So don't mistake the patience of God for slowness. Personally, I'm glad Jesus Christ did not come back a hundred years ago because I wouldn't have been born and I wouldn't have had the joy and privilege of being born again either. God is patient. Then he says, thirdly, God is gracious. Verse 9, not wanting anyone to perish. The Bible teaches in hundreds of verses that God's personality is love and kindness. There's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, kezed, and it appears more than 180 times. Sometimes it's translated kindness, sometimes mercy. But neither quite does it. 
So most of the time, it's translated loving kindness. For instance, Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. The nearest New Testament equivalent in the Greek is grace. God is gracious. God doesn't want anyone to perish eternally in a place the Bible calls hell. Hell was never intended for human habitation. Jesus said in Matthew 25:41 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why Christ came to save us. I was uh, speaking in Bath University a few years ago um, on the subject that they always set the subject for you to preach on uh, when I used to go there. And uh, they asked me to preach on uh, eternal life and eternal punishment. At the end, as always, we opened up for questions and a young student who was a universalist, someone who believes that hell isn't forever uh, and heaven isn't forever, um, stood up and said, did you know that the word eternal means a fixed period of time, not forever? Now, that's the argument universalists always use. Now, in a sense, in a strict sense of the word, they're right. The root of the New Testament word for eternal, aeonian, um, is aeon, and it means age. Therefore, they say, eternal speaks of a limited time period. No one's going to be sent to hell forever. But as with all New Testament words, the context is what is important. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 6.16 says about God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, it says. God is not immortal for an age, nor is his dominion temporal. The word eternal is absolutely the best way to translate the Greek in the context, aeonian. Because God is immortal and eternal. Psalm 92, 90 verse 2 again, I quoted it earlier. Before the mountains were born, or you, were brought, you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Jesus uses the same word when he promises us eternal life. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Clearly, the context of these verses is forever life. Then Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the eternal life and eternal punishment are brought together in one verse and with the same meaning. In scripture, 
in its context, the word eternal is used of both heaven and hell as destinations in eternity. 2 Peter 1.11 we read, And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is an everlasting kingdom. And he says we're welcome when we know Christ into that kingdom. Furthermore, to me, there's a far more serious matter in universalism. You see, the idea is, for universalists, that after you die, if you go to hell, you kind of have a period of probation. Um, I think the Roman Catholics call their view of that purgatory. Um, it's a, universalists see it as a kind of probation through which you can come and be given a second chance. Christ died on the cross because we could not earn or deserve our salvation. It has to be, the Bible says, all of grace and mercy. It's the free gift of God because it's not of works as Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, lest anyone should boast. Even if you give someone 10,000 years of probation, they could not earn or deserve salvation. That's why we have to receive Christ now. Now is the time, says Paul, now is the day of salvation. But God is not willing that any should perish. But if we reject Christ, then what Jesus described in Luke 16 will come true, a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. I'm going to just skip a little bit there, so I'm going on a bit too long, I think. But I want to say this. We must never forget that God is just. We don't always see justice done on earth, but God's law has no loopholes. What God says will come to pass. Let me read the context, the full context of uh, uh, that little bit I picked out of Romans 2, 3 to 4. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So God, Peter says, is everlasting. God is patient. God is gracious. But don't forget, he says that God is just. If I were to ask you who's the oldest man who ever lived, who would you say? Well, we need some Bible teaching here, don't we? Uh, Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible who ever lived. Enoch was Methuselah's father. The Bible says Enoch walked with God. Jude writes in his epistle that Enoch was a preacher of righteousness, a man of God. And Enoch knew something that others didn't know. He knew that judgment was coming. Because when he had a son, he named him Methuselah, which means when he is dead, it shall come. The it was the flood. And when Methuselah died, the flood came. 
But Methuselah lived 969 years. The oldest man ever to live. God was patient throughout that long period, not willing that any should perish. Peter tells us that Noah preached during the 120 years of building the ark, but sadly at the end only eight were saved. Christ's second coming has not happened yet. We're in a moment of opportunity where we can receive Christ and respond to his offer of salvation. There's an old hymn, close with just reading two verses to you. It's written in Old English. I, I don't want to change that. Today thy mercy calls me to wash away my sin. However great my trespass, whate'er I may have been, however long from mercy I may have turned away, thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse me and make me whole today. Today thy gate is open, and all who enter in shall find a father's welcome and pardon for their sin. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Today is what we have. We have today the offer of salvation. God wants us to take it. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to say thank you for being so patient, so long-suffering. Lord, we just thank you for such a loving kindness that, Lord, you waited for us to come to know Jesus. Lord, I pray that if anyone here hasn't made that step this morning, that they will make that step now. And just say, Lord Jesus, come in to my heart and life today. Father, will you help us to be patient, believing and trusting that you will keep your word, that you will keep your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.